This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Organizational decisions are based on fads, not facts. Up next, Jeffrey Pfeffer, professor of organizational behavior at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, explores evidence-based management best practices. This audio presentation is brought to you by Stanford Social Innovation Review, courtesy of the Center for Social Innovation. Hi, this is Elena Connor-Snibby. And I'm Eric Nee. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Today we're excited to bring you another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation in the Stanford Discussions series. The Center for Social Innovation is a growing community of leaders committed to a just, prosperous, and sustainable world. The Center offers leadership development programs and publishes our award-winning quarterly journal, the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. And now, here's our presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Um, it's now a distinct pleasure to be able to introduce my, uh, my friend and, and colleague, Professor Jeff Pfeffer. Uh, Jeff is the Thomas D. Professor of Organizational Behavior uh, here at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. He is a prolific and influential scholar, uh, has uh, dozens of books, uh, articles that are widely cited. Uh, he's also a provocative thinker and somewhat irreverent. Um, he also, uh, unlike many academics, has managed to span theory uh, and, uh, and practice. In addition to his academic writings, uh, he's been a consultant for organizations. He's currently a columnist for Business 2.0. Uh, and is the author of what, uh, if it is not already, I expect will be a best-selling uh, book, Hard Facts, Dangerous Truths, Dangerous Half-Truths, and Total Nonsense, Profiting from Evidence-Based Management. Uh, Jeff Pfeffer, a good uh, friend of CSI and a role model for me. Good morning. Okay, so... We have about an hour and 15 minutes, during which time I'm going to cover lots of material. Many years ago, actually on January 19, 1985, I met a woman named Kathleen Frances Fowler, and we began dating. And she said to me one day, what do professors do? She had never dated a professor. She had dated like lawyers and corporate presidents. She decided to slum a little bit. She said, what? She said, what Cora? She said, what do professors do? And I said, we write. And she said, can I see something that you've written? So I gave her an article to read. And she sat, I still remember, in the rocking chair, which we, of course, no longer have. It's one of the things when you marry someone, they get rid of your furniture. But in any event, so she sat in this rocking chair and read this article and looked up and said, wow, this is brilliant. And I made a mistake, which I have made many times since. I said, what makes you say that? Just take the compliment, don't go on. <laughs> and she said, you know, she said, this is really brilliant. She said, I could have never taken so many, this many ideas and made so many pages out of this. <laughs> and so out of that, we have invented the um, ideas, IPP, ideas per page, and the IPM, the ideas per minute. And this morning, we're going to try to maximize the ideas per minute as I talk to you about hard facts, dangerous half-truths, and total nonsense profiting from evidence-based management. I also hope to leave a little time for questions and answers, and we are going to practice evidence-based management this morning. Towards the end of this session, we're actually going to do a survey of a book title. It's interesting. A lot about evidence-based management is how we think about stuff. So I've written yet another book, which is um, coming out probably in 2007, and we're having a debate about the title, and you this morning, believe it or not, are going to choose the title. So we have, we actually practice what we try to teach, uh, a little bit anyway. So how did we come uh, to write about evidence-based management? Uh, the answer to that is reasonably simple. A long time ago, we wrote a book called The Knowing Doing Gap, 
And people would run up to us and they would say, we're actually turning our knowledge into action. The Knowing Doing Gap was about why organizations do not do what they know they should. So people would run up to us and they'd say, we're turning this knowledge into action. We're actually doing it. And they would begin to describe to Bob and I things that were so in contradiction to everything you would know about human behavior that you would say, wow, where did you get this idea? And then you would hear the answers, which were terrifying. My boss went to a seminar. <laughs> We've all had that problem, right? Or, you know, my, our CEO read an article in the Harvard Business Review and they decided to do it. So we said, wow, not only is there a knowing doing problem, there's a doing knowing problem. <laughs> that people are doing stuff which is inconsistent with what we know about uh, human behavior and organizational effectiveness. Secondly, there is, as many of you know, an evidence-based movement in criminology, in education, obviously in medicine, which is where it really began with David Sackett of McMaster University. There's evidence-based government management and policy in the United Kingdom. And we have now launched uh, as a service, and we're trying to build an evidence-based management community, www.evidencedbasedmanagement.com, which is collecting a bunch of resources including course outlines and including uh, links to articles and uh, case studies and other things. We're trying to build a website to encourage an evidence-based management movement. But we, are, but we said, you know, why? And, you know, we were, I, later this year, actually next spring, I'm going to give a talk at the Mayo Clinic. And uh, Carlton Ryder actually wrote a review of my book on Amazon. And he said, you know, he said, it's really interesting. He said, the doctors say, why do we have to practice evidence-based thinking in our practice of medicine, but when it comes time to do administrative stuff, anything goes. <laughs> and so we're trying to, so, so we think that just as there's an evidence-based movement in social policy, uh, there ought to be an evidence-based movement with respect to management policy. And finally, our third impetus was that organizations really do have profound effects on people and society. And by the way, if you have not noticed recently, and here we're talking, of course, mostly of for-profits, but hopefully, and hopefully not too many of you are going to fit in the category I'm about to describe, many organizations are really doing a lot of damage uh, to the people who work in them. Um, there is lots of public opinion survey data on um, job satisfaction, which is down, management distrust, which is up, and depending upon the survey, somewhere between one-half to two-thirds of employees respond to the question, do you trust what your organization or senior management tells you by saying no, which means the definition of how do you tell a CEO is lying, their lips are moving. Uh, there is, uh, there's enormous uh, data that demonstrates disengagement. A Gallup survey said that 71% of the US workforce is disengaged and 19% of the workforce is actively disengaged. Gallup defines active disengagement as trying to sabotage your organization. So active disengagement, so that's almost one out of five employees in the world are, um, uh, you know, are really um, actively trying to sabotage their organization, which I find amazing. Uh, there have been studies of workplace bullying. Physical bullying has stopped, uh, but verbal abuse is quite common. Particularly in some organizations, there are some CEOs who have become famous for their verbal abuse. Verbal intimidation, uh, one survey done at the University of Michigan says that basically one out of four employees said that they have been verbally abused within the past two months. Um, and then they did a survey of nurses. 60% of the nurses said that that doctor had verbally abused them or, her, you know, kind of, you know, harassed them, screamed at them uh, within the preceding two weeks. Uh, workplace bullying is not a good thing. Uh, and we know, as many of the people actually in this room know, some of you may be from organizations that try to deal with this, um, there are profound effects of the organizations in which we work on employees' well-being, their mental health, and their physical health. Uh, the effect of layoffs on mortality and morbidity, the effect of workplace stress on uh, various forms of mental problems, including alcoholism and drug abuse, 
Uh, I still remember years ago meeting a therapist. She said, I have a great practice area. I work in the Silicon Valley. Uh, they, they turn the pressure up, and I try to fix the consequences. So our third reason for writing this book was because organizations, it's not just that you know, organizations aren't doing what they ought to do, which is important, and therefore suffering you know, ineffectiveness as a consequence. It's also the case that organizations are actually causing damage to people by applying stuff that doesn't make any sense. So therefore, there it is, the book Hard Facts, Dangerous Half-Truths and Total Nonsense. So that's why we wrote it. So you might think, I used to think when I was young and naive, probably yesterday, that of course people made decisions based upon the facts. But of course they don't. What do organizational people make decisions based on? Well, we all know what they make decisions based on. Number one, what senior leaders have done in the past and think has been effective. So recently I had the opportunity to teach in an executive program for a large financial organization that was part of an even larger financial organization. And in this large financial organization, we had a bunch of people who were not too happy. And so I gave a little talk on this book, and they said, well, you know, our new CEO of the subsidiary came from um, Citicorp. So they said, let me tell you what he's doing. And I said, I can tell you what he's doing. He's doing with you whatever he did at Citicorp, which turns out pretty much to be right. Now, this makes sense until you think about the following. Suppose you went to a doctor. And the doctor said, I'm going to do an appendectomy. And you said, why? And they said, because I did an appendectomy on the last person and made him better. <laughs> you would probably run screaming out of the room. The fact that something has worked in one place at one time and one circumstance does not mean that it is sensible to do again and again. Because in medicine, we have this weird idea that you actually ought to customize the treatment to the diagnosis. But in organizational management, we do what we do. If we downsize, we downsize. If we, you know, do Six Sigma, we do Six Sigma. We do what we do. And, you know, so that's, it's kind of like how we do it. Next, people look around at what others are doing in the casual benchmarking. So we're going to talk a little bit later about force curve ranking. GE uses force curve ranking. GE does it, it must be great. You know, Toyota puts in the cord to stop the assembly line. Let's put in a cord to stop the assembly line. And I call this casual benchmarking because it is often done reasonably mindlessly. Kind of, we just copy. Many years ago, on the cover of Fortune magazine, there was a picture of Herb Kelleher, the CEO of Southwest Airlines, with the phrase, is he America's best CEO? And the answer is yes. Herb Kelleher has done a fabulous job. Southwest Airlines is clearly in a different league of any of the other airlines. So should you mindlessly copy Southwest? Well, Herb Kelleher will tell you that he drinks a lot of wild turkey. As a matter of fact, he believes the man who invented wild turkey is a god. <laughs> so to anybody else who's just in the liquor industry, to me, is a god. If your CEO drinks as much wild turkey as Herb, will you be as successful as Southwest? That's what I mean by casual benchmarking. Casually copying what other companies seem to have done without thinking about why does it work? Under what conditions does it work? What makes it work? Ideology and belief. That's another thing. It's probably the hardest thing to get rid of. We do things because we believe in them. So I have friends in the Silicon Valley who believe in stock options. There are now more than 200 studies. This is not an exaggeration. I'm prone to exaggeration, but I'll tell you when I'm exaggerating. There are literally more than 200 studies that have examined the effect of top management equity ownership on organizational financial performance. The meta-analysis of these 200 studies finds that there is exactly and precisely no relationship between, the, between executive uh, um, uh, stock ownership, including through the options or other forms of executive stock ownership and company financial performance. There is, however, evidence that the use of stock options is reasonably reliably associated with the likelihood that the firm will have to un uh, restate its financial statements. <laughs> But for the people who believe in stock options, it does not matter that there are 200 studies. Some people believe, actually our governor, I think, uh, the governor of California, the governator, as we like to call him here, uh, believes in incentive pay in schools. Does that work? Does it not? We'll talk about that later, actually. But we believe in things, and we do it because we believe in it. 
By the way, if you went to a doctor and the doctor said, I believe in leeches, you would probably, again, run, you know, run from the room. You expect your physician to actually practice based upon the evidence, not what they think is going to work or what they believe in or whatever. Belief is fine, but not in the practice of management. Um, what senior leaders are good at doing, we do what we're good at. What is being advocated or talked about in the business press? What is being hyped? Management is filled with fads and fashion. Total quality management's in, then it's out. Uh, Six Sigma's in, that's the new replacement for total quality management. You know, whatever's in, we do. We're kind of into fads. It's too bad. It's, if you are, by the way, going to practice a fad, there's a research study that was just done that said you need to get a consulting firm who is either early or late. It, tur it turns out the early ones in actually know about the technique. The ones who survive the shakeout are pretty good at doing the technique. But in the middle, of course, everybody rushes in and half of them don't know what they're doing. But they're selling whatever's hot. And of course, what vendors are hyping, which is a problem in medicine as well. You know, we're hyping, you know, whatever it is. If I believe what comes across my email, it's Viagra. <laughs> but you know, whatever. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're hyping vendors are pushing a thing. And by the way, the vendors sel seldom tell you what's wrong with what they're pushing. That again is different. When I go to my doctor and my doctor prescribes something or recommends something for me, the doctors are duty bound, and in my case, he certainly does, tell you the downsides. You know, there is no, even aspirin has potential side effects. There is no medicine that they can give you, no matter how wonderful. Uh, that does not have side effects. It is their job to, first of all, tell you about the side effects, to inform you, and so that you can make a reasonable decision about balancing risk versus trade-off. Most of the vendors who are selling stuff never tell you about the risk. They only tell you how great it is. So this is one of the reasons why we have this problem. Organizational decisions are based upon the wrong stuff. By the way, none of this leads to better decisions. So what is evidence-based management? It's not just going out and getting a lot of data. That would be helpful. But it's really more important than data, quantitative, or even qualitative. It is really around a way of thinking. It is a way of thinking. Number one, having an attitude of wisdom, which is defined by Plato, is knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know. Somewhere between arrogance and insecurity. Being willing to act on the basis of what you know while doubting that so you can learn while you're acting. Being committed to fact-based or evidence-based action. The most amazing organization I have ever seen that's committed for, to fact-based and evidence-based action, it doesn't mean it's the most, but it's the most I've seen, is a company called DaVita. DaVita used to be called Total Renal Care. They are now the second largest provider of dialysis services in the United States. How do I know they're committed to fact-based decision-making? Well, because when their CEO stands up and says, we have the best outcomes in the dialysis industry, a statement, you know, this is fine. You know, you pick up these annual reports. We are the leader in X. We are the leader in Y. You know, it's amazing. There are 20, leading, there are 20 business schools all in the top three. It's amazing how, that, how, we, how we could do that. It's kind of like amazing. He stands up and actually presents data on mortality, morbidity, the various measures of blood chemistry that are important in the treatment of dialysis, and demonstrates their data versus the industry versus their competitors, and ends every one of these presentations with the statement, no brag, just facts. We are about not bragging. We are about making decisions based upon the facts. And their chief operating officer, who says he has to do this congenitally because he's an industrial engineer, uh, puts out a report to all of their facility administrators. And if there is an important measure that would help them manage their business better, and that measure is not currently available, they put the measure on the report anyway with the phrase, not available. As the COO says, month after month, when they, people see reports that say not available, they figure out how to get the information available. We will not compromise on our commitment to trying to produce evidence that is relevant to make better decisions. That's a commitment. And second, finally, being committed to hearing and telling the truth. It is really amazing, we spent a little bit of time on this, but it, I, years ago, watching somebody speak, who was such a great CEO, dawned on me, the obvious, that a lie takes two people. It takes the person who tells the lie 
and it takes the person who in a thousand different ways signals that they want to hear it. I'm reminded of Jack Nicholson's line in A Few Good Men. As you recall that line when he's on the witness stand being, in the, you know, being examined by uh, Tom Cruise and Nicholson says, you can't, you don't want to hear the truth, you can't stand the truth. And I think in many, or in, in many instances, we do not want to hear the truth. Particularly if it's unpleasant. We want to be told how charming we are. We want to be told how wonderfully we're running our organization. We want to, tell, we want to be told how, how effective we are. By the way, not Ken Theory, the CEO of DeVita. I did a case on DeVita. I sat down. It's an amazing company. They've done some amazing things. I sit down to tell him all the amazing things he's done. He looks bored. It's only when I begin telling him the problems that I've uncovered that he gets engaged. And I said, this is really weird. I said, you know, I'm telling you all these great things. You look like you care less. I'd start telling you the problems you're engaged. He said, the things that are going right, I don't have to do too much about. It's the problems I need to know about. It's a wise man. Evidence-based management involves treating your organization as an unfinished prototype, adopting an experimenting mindset. In many organizations that I know and love, we have an idea, we should do it everywhere, or we should do it nowhere, as opposed to, let's try it out. So over the weekend, for instance, I was getting advice on this book title for the survey you're going to get to fill out towards the end of this. One of my friends said, you know, why not? You know, instead of sitting around debating about what's a better title, ask people. What a weird idea. <laughs> but how many times, you know, Yahoo is great. Osama Fayed, the chief um, kind of business knowledge wisdom officer at, uh, at Yahoo, says, why would anyone sit around debating designs of websites? Why would you debate this for a minute? Try different ones. Have some people randomly who visit your site randomly assigned to see one version. Have some people randomly assigned to see another version and see which ones stay longer, click through more, whatever. Why would you sit around in meetings debating stuff? Go find out. But that is such a weird idea. And it is so seldom practiced. And finally, evidence-based management means that you should know what the theory and evidence is, to the extent possible, and use it in formulating your decisions and actions. So very quickly, everybody wants to use evidence-based management. Why don't they? Number one, there's too much information. You think you've got competition. There are 3,500 business books published each year. There are more than 30,000 business titles in print. There are hundreds of articles and stuff. Too much information. By the way, the recommendations aren't integrated, so you can't remember them. Magic number seven, plus or minus two, you can remember seven things. If I give you lists of stuff, you know, the 20 things you need to do, uh, you know, in our, <laughs> today, you don't remember 20 things in case you didn't remember, if, if they are not integrated into some theoretical structure. And so you get lists. My friends at Business 2.0, as a matter of fact, we're having a big debate about this. Every one of their covers has like lists, you know, the 20 greatest ideas, the 30 greatest this, the 40 greatest this. It's fine, it's driving circulation up, They've, my fee's higher, it's fine. But it's not a good way to remember anything. Vendors who have products and agendas and who won't tell you what's wrong with them. Not enough time to reflect. There's no learning without reflection. This is true, remember, were you in school? You took a test, got the test back. If you didn't look at what you got right and what you got wrong, you would have learned nothing. Learning requires time to reflect. In most of our organizations, in both the public and private sector today, if people sit around and have time to think, I haven't fully loaded them. Why aren't you busy? My first, my first and only real job after graduating college was working for some think tank outside of Washington, D.C. One day, I was sitting with my feet up after lunch with my eyes closed. Somebody came in and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm thinking. You need time to think. You need time to think and reflect. And not enough, by the way, interest in doing after-action reviews. The military is great at learning, by the way. And medicine has been great at learning through the mortality and morbidity conferences. And by the way, through pathology, the most important person for learning in, manage in medicine, medical education, is the pathologist. And the fact that we are doing fewer autopsies today because managed care won't pay for them is actually a very big problem. Because if you want to learn, you want to reflect. The motto in medicine is forgive and remember. Forgive so that people will admit their mistakes, remember, so you don't keep making the same ones. 
But this requires time, it requires resources to sit and think, what went right, what went wrong? One of the most amazing people I ever met is a guy named Joe Beneducci, who happens to be the chief operating officer for Fireman's Fund, an insurance company, 36 years old when I met him, young guy to have such a high level position. I said, what, made, what has made you so successful? And he said, reading, he reads one book a week. That week he had read one of mine, so I was very happy. Um, he said, but more than that, he said, over the years, I got in the habit of taking a notebook to every meeting, significant meeting, and after that meeting, jotting down a few reflections. What I, what I thought went right, what I thought I did wrong, what I thought went well, what I thought didn't go well, just some learning. By the way, he doesn't necessarily ever go look at that notebook again, but writing cements it in your, res in your memory. Very smart. This is a man who is really, he, and he claims, and I can believe this, owes a lot of his career success. To, to, to taking and just a few minutes after these significant meetings to say, what happened? What should I have done differently? What, did, what, what, what went on? What can I learn? Perfect. And finally, my favorite inconsistent guidance and recommendations. So here we have my favorite, my favorite chart from the book. It's called Warring Book Titles, which, you know, what should you do? Should you believe in the peaceable kingdom or capitalizing on conflict? Should you manage with passion or manage by measuring? Is love the killer app or is business combat? How can you possibly know what to do when you get conflicting advice? And finally, the reluctance to face the facts. What's done is done. An unwillingness to go back and evaluate and therefore learn from experience. Delivering bad news is dangerous. Shoot the messenger. Hearing bad news is unpleasant. And because human beings see what they believe, we often don't want to hear criticism. The nice thing about being in academia is you get criticism all the time. The nice thing about being a columnist for Business 2.0 is my editors think whatever I do is never good enough. And I actually kind of like that. When my editors get too soft on me, I call the Uber editor, Josh Quintner, and say, I need somebody else. I need somebody who's going to give me trouble because the only way you get better is in fact by having people giving you constructive, useful, actionable feedback. But we don't want to hear it. Tell me, my current editor is named Jeff Davis, so we like each other because we each have the same first name. <laughs> Tell me the column I sent you is perfect. He never does. He says, you know, it could be better. Do this, fix that. And together you make it you know, as good as it can be. But we don't like to hear bad news. How do you practice evidence-based management? You want to look inside and challenge conventional wisdom and be an advocate for evidence-based management, and you want to look outside, get the best evidence, and don't succumb to the dangerous half-truths of management. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Looking inside, Gary Loveman. Most of you won't know the name Gary Loveman. Gary Loveman is a hero to me. Gary Loveman, at the age of 38, was an untenured professor in the Harvard Business School Service Management Group. When in 1998, Phil Sautre, the CEO of Harris Entertainment, the large casino company, said to Gary, come work for Harris and be our chief operating officer. What a chance. Here was a guy who had, prior to that moment, managed one half of a secretary, who he shared with another professor, and two research assistants, being asked to become chief operating officer of a company with 40,000 employees. Turns out he did a great job. He's now the CEO of Harris, which today has 100,000 employees following their merger with um, Caesars. Gary Loveman comes to Harris, and he had actually done some consulting for Harris. That's how I knew Phil and the team. And of course, in the gambling industry, there is enormous amounts of conventional wisdom as there is in every industry, including, by the way, the business school industry. The conventional wisdom in the gambling industry is as follows. Comping rooms is a great way of attracting customers. That's why you, know, you get people to come to your casino by giving them the room or giving them the room at a reduced rate. It is important to make casinos and their hotels family friendly. Go to Las Vegas today. Everybody's added attractions, you know, rides, water slides. You know, we want the kids. High rollers, the people who fly in from Dubai or wherever and drop a quarter of a million dollars at you know, the tables are your source of profits. And finally, as you all know, if you've been to Las Vegas, building beautiful edifices is the way to get people. So you can go to Las Vegas, you can see the pyramids of Luxor and the canals of Venice, 
and the New York skyline and the Eiffel Tower, you don't even have to go two miles. And Gary said, this may all be right, but we're going to have a new culture at Harris Entertainment. And he built a new culture quite quickly. So there are three ways now to get fired at Harris, sexual harassment, theft, and doing something without running an experiment first. He said, we are going, he said, he said, this may all be right, but let's find out. And what did he find out? That all of this conventional wisdom turns out to be wrong. <laughs> the money comes from frequent gamblers who spend a little bit of a time and come frequently. They often live nearby, and for them, free chips and meals are way more important than free rooms. Families with young children have neither discretionary time nor discretionary income. You don't want them anywhere near your casinos. <laughs> Most profits come from regular players of slot machines, not the casinos. And by the way, investing in data mining experience, experiments and better human resource policies to cut down turnover will give you more leverage than building edifices. Because when you are standing in line, as I did once at the Venetian for an hour to check in, it does not matter how beautiful your room is because you seldom see it. What is much more important is, of course, the service that you get and the service that you get in the restaurants and the bars and the casinos, and so they cut turnover down. This is why Harris has today the best um, financial performance of any of the casino companies. He also will tell you the story that he said there were everybody in the gaming industry believed that you could not change the hold on a slot machine. The hold is how much the house keeps. He said, how can this be? A woman will go to a designer and buy a black skirt for $1,000 and go to Target and buy the same skirt for $100 and be equally happy with both purchases. How can there be that little elasticity in the pricing of casinos, in the pricing of slot machines? $50 billion a year goes to the Harris slot machines. He said there were 51,000 employees at Harris at the time, 50,999 were sure that you could not change the hold. One was him. He said, let's try Set up different machines with different holds. See what happens. As he will tell you, they make a good living. You can do the math. With $50 billion going through the casinos, you do not have to change the hold very much. And you do not have to get much more clever about pricing in order to make a lot of money. Look outside. Looking inside is challenging conventional wisdom. Looking outside asks you to talk about and think about the half-truths of management. Work is fundamentally different from the rest of life, and ought to be. That's a big half-truth. It's why we all dress differently when we go to work. It's why we tolerate behavior at work that you would never tolerate at home. Jack Welch, famous force curve ranking system. How many of you with four kids say, we're going to use a force curve ranking system? We're going to reward the, the, the one kid, leave the other two alone, and the bottom one we get rid of. <laughs> Every day, we tolerate behavior in the workplace that we would never tolerate in the family. The best organizations have the best people. We're going to talk about that one. Financial incentives drive performance. We've got to get the incentives right. Incent, incentivate. We've screwed up the English language, talking about how we need to do things to people so they'll work. Strategy is destiny. Got to do the right things, because that's what matters. Change or die. Turns out the empirical truth is it's change and die. And by the way, change is difficult and takes a long time. And great leaders are in control of their organizations and ought to be. Hmm. Let's look at a couple of these half-truths. Let's take the one that the organization with the best people wins. That seems so sensible on the surface. Number one, we live in a competitive world. In a competitive world, you've got to have great people. And by the way, research does show that the best people outproduce the others by a significant amount. One study demonstrates that in a typical year, if you take all the music played by all the symphonies in the world, 50% of that music has been composed by 16 people. The next 250 constitute the other 50%. 10% of the authors have written 50% of the books in the Library of Congress. These are true facts, as we like to say. In computer programming, the best programmer will outperform the worst by a factor of about 5 to 10, depending upon the particular task. So people make a difference. 
So we ought to get the best people, shouldn't we? And by the way, it is in fact possible to identify better performers in advance. You can measure their abilities. You can give them work samples. You can measure values and attitudes and character. So what's wrong with this idea? By the way, the, the half-truths are particularly dangerous. Something that's completely wrong, total nonsense, you probably don't believe. Half-truths are half-truths because there is an element of truth in them, but there's also an element that, if carried to the extreme, causes them to be not quite correct. Talent turns out not to be fixed or necessarily easily identifiable. So the question is, what do Kurt Warner, Jake Del Home, and Steve Young have in common? They were all MVPs in the Super Bowl, and all of them were considered at one point in their careers to be unable to play quarterback in the National Football League. Michael Jordan was cut by his high school basketball coach. And Johann Sebastian Bach was not considered a great musician until long after his death, because what is great music depends upon taste and standards which evolve over time. So it turns out talent's not so easy to identify. And talent, by the way, is not fixed unless you think it is. A colleague in the psych department named Carol Dweck has written a book called Mindset. It's a very important book because it talks about what we are doing in our schools and in our companies by believing that talent is fixed. It turns out if you believe talent is fixed, it becomes fixed because you see every test not as an opportunity to see what you need to learn, but as an evaluation. So I take a test. I fail, I say, well, you know, this is a subject I shouldn't pursue. I better find something I'm better at, as opposed to believing that talent is, in fact, malleable. So when you get feedback, you say, oh, this is an opportunity for me. This is an area in which I need improvement. Anyway, it's interesting thought. The organization with the best people does better, but Deming and the quality movement maintain that it is the system that determines performance, not the people. This is true for studies of baseball players and team performance. And when it turns out when you take a baseball player, and the baseball is kind of nice because you've got nice statistics on individual performance. You can measure someone's ability by taking basically an average of how they've done to this point in time. If they have a career, you take their average as a measure of their native performance. Turns out if you put them on a great team with great people, they actually do better. Put them on a crummy team, they do worse. Same people, different system. Some of you remember in the early 1980s, General Motors operated an automobile assembly plant in Fremont, California. Lousy productivity, lousy quality, world-class levels of alcoholism and drug abuse. The Fremont chief of police was quoted, it was the best place to buy drugs because it ran three shifts. <laughs> Never closed. <laughs> Taken over by Toyota in a Toyota GM joint venture called New United Motors Manufacturing Incorporated. The contract with United Auto Workers said 80, said the people in this plant have to be the same. You have to offer recall rights to the same people. Same people, different management system. And you can see the difference in the productivity. Twice the productivity, much better quality. Same people, different system. So there are two lessons for managing talent. Treat talent and performance as something that almost anyone can achieve through effort and practice. And worry about the system not just individual people. Let's take another half-truth. Financial incentives drive organizational performance. We're obsessed. You all come from, an from a sector that is obsessed with this. Because I hear people all the time saying, we live in the nonprofit world. We can't do what they can do in these businesses, throw money at our problems. I said, what a big advantage you have. You have to do something that they never do in business, which is like throw mind at it. <laughs> it actually works way better. But we, you know, we believe that you know we 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 believe that rewards are really important for three reasons. Number one, reward systems help people self-select. Investment bankers are mostly people who are interested in dough. That's why they went into investment banking. I mean, you know, so the, you, if I pay you on the basis of performance, it should enable me to attract people who think they're going to do better under a contingent reward system. Reward signals, systems signal what is important. In a world in which there are thousands of things to do, how do I know what matters? What the organization tells me through its rewards. And of course, rewards motivate and direct behavior. And rewards can matter a lot. A study of Safe Light Glass, which is a glass, windshield glass installer, 
found that when they put in a piece rate system, productivity went up, they got better employees, more productive employees, everything worked. And of course, using differential rewards is quite consistent with Western ideas of fairness. I mean, if Jim Phils does a better job than I do, which he does on a regular basis, he ought to make more. It seems only fair and just. Incentives matter, but first of all, surveys show that people work for many things other than money. There is, however, an extrinsic incentives bias where we believe everybody else is motivated by money even though we know we aren't. <laughs> so let me give you an example of this. Kaplan, you know Kaplan, the educational thing that does test preparation. They did a survey of people preparing to take the LSAT, the Law School Admissions Test. And they asked them the following question. Why are you interested in going to law school? Only 12% of the people said it was for the money. But they asked them why they thought other people wanted to go to law school. 62% said they were going for the money. <laughs> we believe other people are motivated by money even though we know we aren't. Interesting. Incentives matter, but sometimes you get what you pay for, but you don't really want it. The city of Albuquerque, New Mexico, had a very big problem. Garbage truck drivers were spending too much time collecting the garbage. So they put in incentive pay. The incentive was simple. You got eight hours of pay regardless of how long it took you to collect the garbage. Now I assume that there's no one in this room who's an expert on garbage collection. But I'll give you, this is the first part of our interactive test here. I'm going to give you like one second. Think about if you were a garbage truck driver and wanted to finish your route as quickly as possible, what might you do? Let's see if you can reproduce what the city of Albuquerque found. How do, you, how do you get done faster? Anybody? How do you collect less garbage? Skip people, exactly. Okay, so number one, you got number one. The three things happen and you got one. It turns out I can finish my route quicker if I don't bother to pick it all up. <laughs> so the city of Albuquerque would get calls saying, by the way, you missed my garbage. And the city of Albuquerque had to send out a truck to pick up that person's garbage, which is not very cost efficient. Okay, so that's one way. Any other ways? How else can I go? How else can I do it faster? Speed, exactly. City of Albuquerque, speed. If you speed, what happens? You have accidents. So the city of Albuquerque was having accidents. Turns out these garbage, you know, you know, it turns out if you never put on the brakes, you move faster. <laughs> And there's a third thing which you have to be very subtle to figure out so we won't even try to have you guess this, which is it turns out that as part of the garbage collection process, you load the truck, you go to the dump, you continue your route. If you don't bother going to the dump and drive the truck overweight, you can be more efficient. So the trucks were going to, how do I know this? Because in 2004, and this is cited of course in the book, uh, the Associated Press ran an article called Albuquerque Grand Jury. The civil, the civil Grand Jury was investigating why incentive pay had caused the cost of garbage collection in Albuquerque to go up. And it had gone up because they were now sending up trucks to collect garbage one at a time. People were speeding, getting in accidents. The city of Albuquerque had to settle. And by the way, they were getting fined for going to the dump overweight. Nordstrom shoe salespeople, my last story. My wife, who Jim Phils knows very well, and as you can tell already, is of many things, she's a saint to be married to me, but is just wonderful and fabulous. She has very narrow feet with extremely narrow heels. Nordstrom, and based, this was actually written up in a column which got me a private lunch with Blake Nordstrom. Nordstrom believes in incentives, and they believe in paying people by sales per hour. So one day, Kathleen and I arrive at the Nordstrom's in San Francisco Center to buy shoes. And so she sits down, tells the guy what size she wears, tells him about the narrow heel. He brings out a big pile of shoes. And it was kind of like Goldilocks, you know. He tries them on. This one's too thin. This one's too fat. This one doesn't feel well. Whatever. He disappears. We sit there for a while. And I say, you know, Kathleen, he's not coming back. And she said, how do I know? She said, how do you know? I said, because there he is over there, waiting on other people. He, in fact, did exactly what he was incented to do. 
If I want to maximize sales per hour, there is no guarantee you will ever find a shoe that will fit her foot. And you are certainly not going to do it very efficiently. At which point, Kathleen and I walked into Arthur Barron's, where she tried on the word that you never want to hear, Ferragamos. <laughs> and when she found a pair that fit her perfectly, and the salesman asked her the fatal question, how many pairs do you want? <laughs> I knew what the answer was going to be. As many pairs as you have. It's interesting. We can talk more stories. Sometimes you get what you want, but you don't really want it. By the way, sometimes you don't want people who have joined your organization just for the money. Picture going to a doctor. You have a choice of two. Dr. A and Dr. B. You go to Dr. A and say, why did you go into medicine? And Dr. A says, I went into medicine because, and I actually have a friend who's a physician who answers this way, I figured I could make more money and do less work. Or you go to Dr. B, and Dr. B says, I went into medicine because I was intellectually interested in medicine and I wanted to serve people. Which doctor would you choose? The answer is obvious. And of course, the use of variable pay, pay for performance, increases pay dispersion, which can have negative effects on both individual and organizational performance, and there's a lot of studies that demonstrate that. So what should you do? By the way, raises don't work. In the words of my friend David Russo, who used to be the head of HR for SAS Institute, the largest privately owned software company in the world, a raise is only a raise for 30 days. After that, it's your salary pointing out the wisdom that these incentives lose their effectiveness very quickly. Don't try to solve every problem with financial incentives. Sometimes less is more effective. You want enough incentive to use the incentive as an opportunity to celebrate your collective successes, but you don't want it to distort behavior. Be careful what you reward. You might just get it and worry about comparisons and distributions, not just individual pay. So. What do you do if you can't know everything? We have to face a very practical problem, because I give this talk, and people say to me, well, you know, Jeffrey, this is fine for you. You're an academic. You get paid to sit around and read and think. But some of us actually have to do stuff. Sometimes they substitute stuff with another word, but we won't. <laughs> we gotta get stuff done. You know, I can't have time. You know, I don't have a library, which, by the way, Stanford has. Daphne Chang and Paul Rice, who are like amazing, they help create our evidence-based management website. You know, we don't have resources that have access to every database in the world and a librarian sitting around ready to help. Sometimes we actually have to do stuff, and we don't have time to gather all the data. To which, of course, I have an answer. And the answer is, is that every managerial intervention in every organization is premised on a set of assumptions about people and organizations. And therefore, instead of gathering all the data, spend five minutes, 10 minutes, maybe even 15 minutes, uncovering what are the assumptions, asking you and your colleagues, are the assumptions reasonable? And moving on. Do the assumptions fit your experience? If they don't, then the thing probably won't work. So I'm going to give you three examples, or maybe two, we'll see. Merit pay in schools. This is, again, this is a kind of test. We want you to interact. This is not a very interactive format, but I once taught a case to 285 people, and there are only 200 people in the room, so this will be fine. <laughs> Merit pay in schools. We all know that American schools are not doing very well, which is true. So what is the answer? The answer is put in merit pay for teachers. Number one, performance is measured by increases or level in students' performance on a standardized test. We are going to give teachers a small but meaningful bonus ranging between $1,000 to 5% of pay based upon improvement on these standardized tests. And awards will typically go, because of budget constraints, to a small proportion of the teachers, those who are able to achieve the best performance. What does this system for improving student achievement assume about teachers, students, learning? Anybody, or somebody raise their hand, I'll call on you, and we'll kind of get out a few assumptions. Yes, ma'am. So if I heard you correctly, and if I didn't, you should speak out again, that the, that, the, that, the, that, the that the teacher's effort is correlated with student learning, and that the teachers, therefore, are most responsible for the student's learning. As I said to one of my colleagues who's a big believer in merit pay for teachers, this is from the Hoover Institute, what do you expect? 
Uh, I couldn't. I'm sorry. It slipped out. I said, after you, if, you, if you want merit pay, merit pay for parents. The research evidence is completely consistent that parents have way more to do with what their kids learn than the damn teachers who don't see them that often. Of course, the teachers are motivated by money. That sometime early in their career, teachers had a choice. I could go into investment banking or first grade teaching, and I think I'll pick first grade teaching because I'm interested in money. <laughs> we could spend more time on this, but I want to do a couple of other examples. In five minutes, 15, you can figure out that the underlying assumptions don't conform. And you will have replicated, it turns out, that there is an article in the Harvard Education Review or something, I don't remember the exact citation. Turns out two things about merit pay. Number one, merit pay is not new. Everybody thinks it's new. Merit pay has been used in American schools for approximately 100 years. There has been evaluation of merit pay done for 100 years. And in 100 years of merit pay, the research is summarized that says it doesn't work. Does this affect public policy? Of course not, because we believe in it. But if you uncover the assumptions, you can see, and by the way, you can figure out under what could, there's another assumption, which we didn't have time to get to, which is that it is teachers' effort that matters, not ability. If I put a 1,000-pound weight on this floor and say, you have to lift it unaided, and I say, I'll give you $10 to lift it, not enough incentive. Suppose I give you a million dollars. Will you be able to lift 1,000 pounds unaided? I don't think so. This is not about incentive. This is about ability. Incentives only work on effort. It doesn't work on ability. If I can't do the job, paying me more to do it is not going to help me do it better. <laughs> Interesting set of assumptions. OK. Do it. You're getting kind of warmed up. This is great. Force curve ranking system. Made famous every place. General Electric, Stanford Business School, 90% of the organizations I know and love. There was a survey done by Novation said that 60% of the Fortune 500 companies use some kind of force curve ranking system. And the theory behind force curve ranking system is when I give you a merit raise budget to pass out, you use what has come to be called in human resource language the mayonnaise theory. You spread the raises equally across people. That's a bad thing. I want you to differentiate between your good and poor performers. So a typical system will force leaders to differentiate among their employees between the ones who are good and the ones who aren't. You should have to give 10 to 15% A's. It's kind of like Stanford Business School. 70% B's, 10 to 15% C's, if you will. Prescription, lavish rewards on the best so you can keep them. Get rid of the worst and leave the others kind of alone. This is in a book, the McKinsey book, The War for Talent, which some of you may be familiar with. Think about this. It's an interesting system. You know, there are better people, worse people I want to differentiate. What does this assume about the causes of organizational performance, about individual performance, about the people doing the rankings and the people being ranked? What do you think the evidence shows about the effectiveness of force curve ranking? What are the assumptions? Again, we're getting into kind of uncovering assumptions. This is like a little practice. For you, when you go back home, you can uncover assumptions about what you're going to do. Well, the first thing it assumes is that people are fixed. So you're an A, you're a B, you're a C. You're way over at the end. We don't even know, but you're fixed. That's number one. What else does it assume? That my assessment of you is going to be reliable and objective. That I know whether you're an A, B, or C. Is that right? Okay, another assumption. It presumes that the organization's performance is the simple summation of all the individuals and what they've done. So let me ask you a question with respect to the second comment about individual, uh, the ability to, to measure individual merit. A study was done by a guy named Skorman, published in the Journal of Applied Psychology in 1988. He managed to get his hands on the most amazing data. It's just amazing. He got data on real objective measures of performance and the performance evaluations assigned to a set of people in some government agencies. Now, very much just like in the world in which you and I live, there were two kinds of employees that the supervisors were evaluating. Some of the employees they had actually hired. Some of the employees they had inherited when they took over their position. Which people got the higher evaluations? 
The question is obvious, right? I hired you, you're great. I inherited you, we're not so sure. <laughs> it turns out that whether or not I had hired, whether or not the supervisor had hired the person being evaluated, accounted for more variation in the rating than their actual performance. Not surprising. By the way, these systems also presume that I like grading people, that people like being told that there are C's or B's. It's interesting. There are all kinds of assumptions. The research shows it doesn't work. Okay. So we're about to do my practice of evidence-based management. Let me leave you with three parting thoughts and have take some questions while you fill out the title survey, which you don't believe. You're actually going to determine the title of this book. I'm committed to this. Party thought number one, treat your organization as an unfinished prototype. Understand David Kelly is the founder and former CEO of IDO Product Development, the most successful product development company in the world. They made the Apple Mouse. They made Palm Pilots. They actually made the mechanical whale for the movie Free Willy. One day he came into work. He has a famous, iconic Groucho Marx mustache. One day he came into work. The mustache was shaved off. He said, I want to symbolize two things. Number one, anything can be changed. There are no sacred cows. Anything can be changed. And number two, anything that's changed can be undone. The mustache, you don't like it? The mustache will grow back. Yahoo does about 20 controlled experiments a day. They have hundreds of thousands of visitors to their websites. You may not have hundreds of thousands of visitors. Maybe it'll take you a month to do the same experiment. People come. They get different website designs with different colors, and they watch the results. Treat your organization unfinished prototype. We are always experimenting. Get into this experimenting mindset. Learn by doing. Try stuff out. It's a weird idea, but try it. Parting thought number two. Practicing evidence-based management is about being the master of the obvious and the mundane. The obvious is that if you, nothing will work unless you do it. You know, some years ago, I had an opportunity to go to the Pritikin Center, Pritikin Longevity Center. It's kind of like Dean Ornish. It's, you know, one of these health spas. It's actually run by my cousin, so I got to go for free, which was very good. And they tell you all these things about diet and exercise. It turns out that sitting in the Pritikin Center and listening to the extra, listening to all this, listening to all this extra, you know, knowledge and absorbing it all doesn't do anything if you don't put it into practice. <laughs> Interesting. And the mundane, many of us are looking for enormous, huge, big changes to make differences in our organizations. But it's often the small things that matter. Some years ago, Continental Airlines went from worst to first in on-time performance. And Gordon Bethune actually wrote a book called From Worst to First. Talks about the transformation. The Wall Street Journal was fascinated. How could an airline which one year had the worst record for on-time performance, the most lost bags, and the greatest number of customer complaints go from worst to first? And how can they go from worst to first in on-time performance? So they sent out a reporter to do a study. Why do some airlines fly on time and some not? First thing he looked at was the weather. Doesn't matter. Next thing he looked at, equipment. Doesn't matter. Turns out he wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal, which is also cited in the book. Believe it or not, what matters, whether or not airlines fly on time or not, some care about it and some don't. It is nothing, and because they care about it, they're willing to make the trade-offs. And the ones who don't, don't, and you've flown on both. <laughs> Some years ago, actually in July, which wasn't that many years ago, just a few months ago, I had the opportunity to go to Minnesota and visit a fabulous heart hospital. Uh, on which a dear friend of mine, Bob Hauser, is one of the founders and sits on their board. And in this hospital, there is amazing equipment. You know, every kind of imaging equipment, every kind of perfusion equipment, every kind of diagnostic medical equipment. It's like amazing. It's just amazing. And as I was walking through the hospital with a group of people, Bob Hauser, Robert Hauser, said, guess what is the most important intervention in this hospital? And the single most important thing that we have done to improve our health outcomes. And I, since I have lots of doctor friends and read this stuff, said, I can tell you exactly. It is the little inexpensive pieces of paper outside every single 
patient's room and a lab room and examining room that says, wash your hands. Hand washing, which by the way gets rid of infection, turns out to have had way more effect on mortality and morbidity than all the other equipment. Most of the reason why 90,000, the estimates vary between 9 and 110,000 people die this year and they have now a big program which is called 100,000 Lives Saved. They've exceeded 100,000 lives saved. And it is not about putting in fancy equipment. It is about, you know, delivering the right drugs to the right people. It's not to, you know, it's not to whatever. Life is about small things that make a very big difference. Hand washing in medicine, wanting to fly on time in the airline business, standing up, turns out there's a nice study. If you hold meetings with people standing up, the meetings last long. Last long. <laughs> Parting thought number three, the best diagnostic question, what happens when people fail? Single best diagnostic question, there's no learning without failure, therefore what happens in your organization when people fail? There are no, there's no, we never get smarter without having setbacks. If you're playing golf and every time the ball goes in the cup, you're either Tiger Woods or you're standing too close to the cup. The only way you develop your skills is by stressing and pushing yourself and failing. All right, so I will now take questions for two or three minutes. There we got a question, excellent. Hello, I work for the city and county of San Francisco, and one of the phenomena that I found is that after maybe six months to two years, you no longer have any intelligence as an employee. Can you speak to this? And, and is there anything I can do after 21 years with the city to express my intelligence and how much I've already practiced many of what you've said, Good. but everyone thinks, well, you know, she's been here a long time. Yep. Whew. If I had an answer for that, I don't even know. Um, you are certainly right. One, I think there are two principles that I am a big fan of advocating. One is, as an organizational manager, what you need to do is you need to move people around. I mean, you know, because it's after a while you become literally like a fish with water. You don't see the water anymore. One of the interesting things is, is to see people come into Stanford University, and I try to talk to them early when they're here, and I say, what looks weird to you? Because to me, it's all normal now. Um, so I think one thing is you ought to take advantage of new people and put people in new situations. For yourself, you need to do things, you know, to do, to, to, to challenge yourself and to keep yourself fresh by putting yourself in new situations and trying to look at your job through new eyes or new ways. But you are certainly right. Actually, a colleague and I did some research that demonstrates that you are never a prophet in your own land. That people will hire people from outside, you know, to give you the, the, the same advice that you've told them for a long time. Because what is outside looks exotic and interesting, and what looks inside looks common. And so that's just the bias that we have to work hard as companies and organizations and nonprofits to overcome. You had a question. This was a quick question. You talked about the evidence for executive stock options, but is that true across the board for all kinds of employees' stock options, that they're not useful as incentives? No, that is a... Well, first of all, it's a short question that will have a long answer, but I will try to be mercifully brief with the answer. Um, number one, options have a different effect than ownership. Turns out that employee ownership has a big effect. But ownership is different than options, because ownership means I've actually put out money, I bought something, I own it. An option is like giving you a lottery ticket. You know, you either the wins or it doesn't. But there is certainly some evidence that options down in the organization have some effect. But employee ownership is, and for that matter, ownership is way better than the options, because ownership involves an actual decision and a choice and a commitment. I never want to overstay my welcome. Thank you for staying awake. You've been listening to a presentation from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford. For additional practical and provocative ideas, check out the Center's award-winning publication, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, at www.ssireview.org.
Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Stephen Eng. Our website editor was Bernadette Clavier. The series producer is Bernadette Clavier. My name is Eric Nee, and I hope you'll be joining us next time for another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.